This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Today on the podcast, I welcome Todd Thomas, or Speech, as he's called in the hip-hop world, from the Atlanta-based band Arrested Development. A pioneering group, Arrested Development made it a point to differentiate itself from gangster rap and the violent stereotypes that dominated the genre. With a focus on positive, Afrocentric sounds and lyrics, Arrested Development's debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, sold over six million copies worldwide. Here are some of the band's high points. Arrested Development, won two Grammys in 1993, Best New Artist and Best Rap Performance. Were named Best New Band by Rolling Stone that same year. Were asked by legend Spike Lee to compose for the film Malcolm X with Denzel Washington. Denzel won his first Oscar. Were able to honor Nelson Mandela at his home while touring South Africa. Have appeared on stage with James Brown, The Roots, Hillary Clinton, Minister Louis Farrakhan, Public Enemy, Herbie Hancock, Oprah Winfrey, and Barack Obama. With a new album out titled On the Cutting Room Floor Mixtape, controversially put out nine tracks and an interlude, to be specific, of previously recorded music that never made it onto their other albums. Hip-Hop's Golden Age magazine says, the fact that the songs didn't make the cut is a testament to the quality of Arrested Development's latest releases. It will be one of the best albums of the year. Ladies and gentlemen, speech. Lord, I've really been real stressed Down and out, losing dress Although I am black and brown Problems got me pessimistic Brothers and sisters keep messing up Why does it have to be so damn tough? I don't know where I can go To let these ghosts out of my skull My grandma passed, my brother's gone I never at once felt so alone I know you're supposed to be my steering wheel Not just my spare tire But Lord, I ask I got force and truth For some strange reason it had to be He guided me to Tennessee Take me to another Then just start doing the same thing they're doing, and then it becomes like phenomena, yeah, yeah, rather than necessarily like just pure human expression of happiness. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, good. You're, I'm glad you're recording. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> well, we. I mean, we can just dive in. Actually, you know, the the first thing I want to talk to you about, which I thought was really cool. Um, is one of the things that Sarah had given me to read was about your TED talk, and I love this notion of sacred serial numbers. Sure. Tell me about that. Yeah, so basically, um, in my view, all of us have this sacred serial number. It's a, it's a, it's a particular thing that we're you know, sent here to do and to accomplish that no one else can accomplish. It's, it's, it's a mix between you know, our backgrounds and, and our particular experience that makes us um, unique and valuable to um, give these various experiences to the world and, and, and help us all to see something that we would not see without it. So that's what the basic speech's premise is, you know, yeah. <laughs> so the sacred serial number is a notion that the person well i mean you, you have to believe that the universe has personality to yes. believe in a se- sacred serial number but so if the universe has personality you believe that every person is a sacred and unique expression that is not duplicatable facts and i also even believe that 
you know, I believe in God. So, you know, I believe that God creates us in that, in that very specific way where each of us have something unique that he wants us to bring to this experience. And so um, it's the reason we're here in the first place. So that's what I think. How long did like do you did you have that understanding when you guys were coming up in the nineties? Like where where was your spirituality then and how has that evolved? Yeah, my spirituality back then was the God piece was pretty secure for me. You know, I grew up um as a young kid with both parents working a lot. So they were away from the house together, meaning married and not divorced, but away from the house. And so I had to do a lot of things by myself and in particular walk around my neighborhood, sometimes miles at a time, at age seven, eight, by myself. Different time period, so it was a lot safer than it is today, and culturally that was a lot more accepted. But racially, way more overt racism, and I was the only black kid in an all-white neighborhood. So I would pray a lot for protection. And Every day I would see small little examples, just little things that would reinsure or reinforce this idea that God was protecting me. And so I had this God piece for quite a while. My, my evolution spiritually came on accident, maybe. My wife and I had a baby out of wedlock, our first son named Jahi. And raising him was when we first realized we wanted to have some kind of spiritual component in our life that was a little more defined other than just whatever we felt was the best move spiritually or emotionally or whatever. And so we started to search for African spirituality at first. I was studying with numerous different people that were explaining African thoughts and theories. And then we started to um, get met by people that were in this Christian faith. And so, um, most of them didn't impress us. There was one girl that did. And um, we started to sort of study the Bible with her. And in, in 1996, I got baptized. My wife, um, I baptized her right afterwards. It was with a non-denominational movement that, in my opinion, was extremely unique and, and, and actually did resonate as real and, and true. And um, so that was where my evolution started to become more, more refined and more defined, in a sense. So, yeah. What was the focus of that spiritual community that you felt like was authentic? Our genuine unif unification as a, as, a, as a movement, our sincere love for one another, like we really, really loved one another. We really were in each other's lives in a very real and substantial way. We knew about each other in a very naked way, you know, um, we knew each other's darkest secrets and we knew each other's highest victories and, and successes. So I think that was probably the most impressive part. And this and just the the confidence and security that comes with understanding why I'm here, purpose, understanding um, what I'm supposed to do uh, while I'm here and understanding that there's a God that cares, like there's somebody that actually cares about all of this. That was, that was deeply soothing and, and, and it answered a lot of, you know, profound questions as a, as a human being for me. What are the core elements of that authentic spirituality on an individual basis? Like, you know, how do you, how do you start to like theologically define spirituality on an individual basis and then kind of as a collective? Sure. I heard some of the collective when you were talking about that, about like the way the community interacts, the, the level of intimacy, yeah. the level of vulnerability. Um, but obviously all of that is only possible in a healthy way, as with all human relationships, if at the core, an individual. Yeah has something going on. Yeah. What do you think that something going on is yeah. that's the core of human spirituality that if it's true is obviously universal, right? In the, in the, in the sense that it's accessible to everyone. Sure. Um, even if uh, we may say some traditions might have a better explanation of that than others. 
But what do you think that core spirituality really is on an individual basis? For me, it was love. It was a love relationship. So it was similar to a marriage. Um, getting to know who God is, um, reading about his personality, his likes, dislikes, and talking to him for um, comfort, for guidance, um, for, you know, to, to just praise him. Things of this nature became sort of the personal journey. And then when you know that, like, say I'm sitting around people in this same congregation and, and I know you're doing it and you have this incredible relationship with him and you're doing it and you're doing it and she's doing it. So then now we're, we have this communion with one another based on this actually very personal relationship that we actually have as well. So that's, so that's sort of the thing that was appealing to me on a personal level. How did you learn to hear the voice of God? To be quite honest, I've never really heard the voice of God. I hear more so the thoughts of God through reading the scriptures and things of that nature. So it's, it's, it was always scriptural based when he talks to me. There might be some intuition some type things that I'm getting, but never so clear that I hear a voice. It was more so a feeling, you know, go left, don't go right, pick this guy, don't pick that guy, you know, that type of thing. But never was a voice that literally said speech. <laughs> sure, but do you do you, you you haven't or you don't experience a notion like the still small voice, the that what you talk about kind of Definitely. intuition. Sure. But there's a, there's a at the core of spirituality, if there isn't a sense that God knows you. Yes then what do you really have, I suppose, right? Very much true, I agree with that. Yeah. Right, and, and it's not about the knowledge of God. It's not like us knowing God. I mean, obviously, one of the great mysteries of spirituality is we know so little yeah. about God and the universe and everything. Like, there's a, there's a vastness to, a, a vastness of uncertainty yeah. that has to lead to nothing but humility in that regard. <clears throat> so there is a, a sense that we it's really hard for us to know God, but I think that still small voice, that journey toward hearing that still small voice, is a journey toward somehow being known by God. Sure. Right? So, so how, would, how do you describe that? Because you must experience that. In what yeah. you're describing, you must experience that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me personally... Um, Although I don't hear him, I see his actions and I see the results of those actions. And it constantly reinforces that what I believe about him is true. And um, so just seeing, you know, the miraculous um, state that we're all in right now. I mean, we're me and you are talking on a microphone with intelligence and thoughts and and we're sitting on a planet that's floating in the middle of space that's you know surrounded by this huge sun which is all so absolutely incredible and then multiply that by billions and trillions of other things that are out there that we don't know there is still this sense of awe and wonder and unknown but then there's this deep intimate sense of what i do know and that i can't come to the conclusion that nothingness made all of this perfectly um, crafted reality that I'm presently living. You know, I'm looking at you all and you all don't look like accidents to me. So there, there's this personal, there's this personal feeling that, yeah, indeed, I've been crafted. And so is this guy. And so is she. And so is he. And so is she. And it's pretty clear to me that this is not just some, you know, random event that just happened. Never seen that happen before. And the more I talk to you, the more I'm, you know, encouraged and, and you know, reassured that, yeah, this is designed and, and this is who I'm talking to. This is who I'm communicating with on a spiritual level. So your music has always had a real um, sense of hope, a sense of uh, vision, 
a sense of belief in the beauty of life. Is that fair? Do you think those are fair things to say? I do. I think so. And I, and it's probably because deep down, bro, I'm, I'm very much a melancholy guy mm. and that I'm very much a, um, I call myself a, a pessimistic optimist where, you know, I, I have, I, I, I don't, I don't think very highly <laughs> um, of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of what group thought tends to bring about. I don't think highly about where people are tending, the, the direction people are going to tend to want to go. And so I think my music juxtaposes that by explaining some of those things that I feel are deficient, but then offering some type of joy at the end because I feel like we all need it. That's how I feel. At least I feel like I need it, definitely. <laughs> well, I think back, I mean... You know, I'm of the maybe perfect age to remember the impact of uh, Tennessee because I was a junior in high school in 1992. Wow. And and I remember even back then, without a, a deep philosophical sense of music, being able to recognize the difference between... Um, rap of the late 80s yeah right and and all of the harsh tones and real like expression of anger yeah. that that young men of every race all experience on some level because teenage angst for men is wrapped up in a lot of anger sure and and so that that expression was an expression that that people of all races socioeconomic levels didn't matter they that that expression of anger was embraced sure and and even and related to but then there was the other side of what became a hip hop movement that was blending pop sure right which you guys were really at the forefront of mm -hmm. where you're taking rap notions blending them with other things but now infusing a different kind of hope joy delight happiness yeah. lightness yeah do you relate to that? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, for me, I've always been um, most fascinated and most inspired by underground people-led movements that happen to make it to the pop world. So, like, that happened to become mainstream. So, like, I was deeply moved when Run DMC was able to do, um, like, King of Rock at first, which was sort of the, this first sort of meshing of rock music with with hip-hop and then it did pretty well and then they later did walk this way with you know bringing back Aerosmith's career and and making this at this time sort of unknown genre or you know whether it's going to make it or not type of genre into a more solidified you know piece in 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 american and of course worldwide um mainstream thought so I, I've always been amazed at those moments. And so, yeah, I, I like I like to infuse. Um, I like I like to basically allow underground thought and, and expression to become mainstream by any means necessary. I, I like that that process. But it also sounds like when you describe yourself as kind of baseline melancholy. Yeah. That a lot of your intentional life direction you choose optimism you willfully choose optimism out of i mean something you, you can describe to me why you willfully choose optimism but it sounds like you feel a baseline um what some people i mean melancholy and depression go together like there's yeah. a there's a there's a deep sense of pain because the world it's obviously filled with pain, yeah. but then in the midst of that, somehow you're choosing optimism. Why do you do that? Like, what 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 inspires that? Yeah, I think that the world can be so much better. I think I so I think that there is this there is this truth in me, at least, that I feel like the world can be so much better if only we applied ourselves enough to you know allow that better to happen like we, a lot of the things we're doing are unnecessary meaning negative a lot of the negatives that we're seeing are unnecessary so i do believe that and i think that's what gives me the hope in some of my songwriting and even some of just my general view of life 
Okay, I think I understand better. <clears throat> what I'm hearing you say is that the negative things that humans do in the world, the right response is actually sadness. Definitely. Right? Yes. So maybe it's not a baseline. So so maybe rather than it being a baseline melancholy, what it really is is a baseline sadness born from the truth that there's a lot of bad things happening in the world. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly All right. right. So now this makes more sense to me. Okay. Because now you're having emotions that are right sized and even right aligned to the world itself. And the world itself is actually producing a lot of things for which we should be sad. Facts. Yet, because you believe in the capacity of man mm -hmm. to shape the world, you know our capacities for good are actually tremendous, mm -hmm. and that if we just would do better, the world would get a lot better. Correct. And those facts by themselves then give you hope. Facts. Got it. Okay, so... And not only our capacity for good, but the capacity for good, meaning even outside of just our own selves, there is the there is the possibility for great things to happen. We have been set up to win, in a sense. So, for instance, with poverty, there is w way more than enough resources. With, with sickness, there is cures and things that have already been created that already exist that can help us. You know, when it comes to um, certain behaviors that are destructive, there is a more sane or more controlled behavior that could actually change that. So there is the capacity for good and our capacity for, for doing better. Yeah, I have a theory. I spent a lot of time um, studying evil sure. and trying to understand why a universe governed by love, yeah. goodness, and all the other characteristics that we might attribute to the personality of the universe. How a person who was based in all these things that were good, that governed an entire universe, could allow so much evil. Sure. And the only, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to try to explore that, but I believe that the only palatable explanation for evil is that somehow God has hope, hope that transcends all of the sadness. So every day, if these things that we want to believe about the universe are true, every day the universe weeps because there are so many things to weep about. Mm -hmm. But then every day the universe has to make a decision. God has to make a decision about whether he holds us in existence or not. And he could cease all the evil by ceasing to hold us all in existence. Yeah. But instead, every day God chooses to hold us in existence, and the only good explanation for that is that he hopes that we'll get better. He hopes that we will actually be able to fulfill our purpose, our destiny, the destiny he desires for us, not a destiny that is that is mandated mm -hmm. or exactly. a or a destiny that is um with that with certainty it's not that we can't thwart our destiny right right we can thwart the things for which we were made exactly but that hope that we won't exactly. is what holds the universe together and allows you know, the, the the problem with with freedom which seems to be an essential part of the whole experiment of creation yeah the problem with it is that it opens up so much capacity for evil yeah and so that these are the things when you're talking, it's making me think of these sure. ideas. Yeah. And so it sounds to me like a lot of your core spirituality is rooted in that same hope, the same hope that holds the universe together that allows God to continue to um, say yes yeah. to our lives is the same thing that has you say yes to hope activity that you believe can transform the world no i totally agree and you know it's those 
for me it's it's i relate it to um a great marriage or a sexual relationship or romantic relationship you know you go out in the dating world and most people at least have a lot of duds you know things that don't work out right and it's just a mess a lot of hurt a lot of hurt feelings and then every once in a while you get this scenario where it works and the feeling is so unexplicable and so beyond the everyday of life that it's incredibly worth it to find that person that you know you're able you're really able to thrive with and have such great joy and security and you know feelings about that it makes the other stuff worth it and i i feel that way about life you know when things do work out right and and when people do rise to the occasion of being better how good does that feel and it feels amazing that's why it gives me hope yeah how do you think your your latest record expresses some of these ideas i think it does really well at that because this record and all of our records are very um honest you know our like for instance we have a mixtape we just dropped it's called on the cutting room floor well first of all that whole record is basically songs that we never released before for one reason or another on, on numerous albums for the last 15 years so it's basically 10 songs that we just never release and I think on this on this record or mixtape, the things that I'm expressing lyrically and, and my partner, One Love, who's one of the rappers that rap with me, are expressing lyrically are so honest. And yet it runs the gamut of all the things that we're sort of talking about. You know, I'm, there's a song called Inspired and Jaded, where it's just talking about this music industry and how much it can frustrate you. And at the same exact time, those moments of of light where it just thoroughly makes you feel like there couldn't be anything better that I could experience right now. Um, so it's that that give and take of what goes on in this industry that I know not only artists can relate to, but people can relate to. Maybe that's just outside of the art world, just in their regular life. But yeah, as artists, we all can relate to that. Which songs, are there songs that you think represent um, an experience of sadness? And then our, I know the songs, I, I listened to a number of them that, that felt like expressions of hope and love. Yeah. yeah. But you blend those. Yeah. And you just think that's a, an expression of the authentic experience. I do. Yeah. I how, think, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, who's, how has the band changed? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's changed a lot. So, like, you know, from our band is a very weird situation where, even before we were ever signed to a record deal, we had 20 members here in Atlanta. We started here in Atlanta. We had 20 members. None of us were making a dollar. And so, you know, we get on stage and it's the Wu-Tang before Wu-Tang, right? And so um, then when we got a record deal, we had to minimize that to six members for financial reasons to just be able to put us on a promotional tour, for instance. Then um, we broke up in 95. When we got back together in 2000, um, we had three members that, well, really four, four members, uh, including myself, that came back. And now in 2023, there's just me as the original, I say it in quotes, member. And then these other members who've been with me for, you know, 20 years, 15 years, depending on the member. So, you know, we're one of those groups that have been through a whole lot of changes. Yeah. But are, are you the only one who's been there? The whole time. The whole time. I'm, I'm the only one. Yeah. The and one. so what's the, what do you think the notion, what is the notion of arrested development that goes beyond you? Um, I, I like to think that it's a communal family of thinkers, expressors, and artists, you know, that are, that are doing our thing. Um, that's what I, that's what I like to think. And I think the fans feel that too. Yeah. So it, it's, so beyond me, it's just this 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 group or collective of expressing, you know, people that are very expressive. The um, the on the cutting room floor, is that all from the '90s or when or? No, in fact, none of the music's from the '90s, but all of it is from, um, I'd say, 2000 on up to here, somewhere okay. in there. Yeah. 
And how is how, how walk me through the arc? Because I don't know all this history. Sure. The, the arc of you guys go in in the early '90s. You're at the peak, true of fame. Yeah. Like you're at the top of the music industry. Yeah, we are. Where's the Where does your journey go from there? In '92 or so, we were at the top of the music industry, sort of, you know, you know, Grammys and all of the various accolades that come with that. '93, um, '94, we're still, you know, doing our thing. By '94, '95, we released a new record, Zingala Maduni, at the time, and it didn't do as well. I think the hip hop landscape had sort of changed while we were while we were doing our thing up here in a sense in this limelight on the underground of hip-hop a lot of things had changed it got into a more um grittier sort of street sound and Nas was becoming um a lot more recognized for what he contributed and then um the sort of mogul you know corporate CEO type of movement within hip hop became very big with Diddy and, you know, wanting to be a hip hop mogul. And, um, you know, then the Jay-Z sort of era came in. So that, that whole bad boy Jay-Z Rockefeller type era sort of swept hip hop for quite a long time. So I think for us, you know, it set us into a path of finding out where we're most relevant in the world, not just in the United States, where for most hip hop artists, the United States is the epicenter of everything you're going to be thinking about. And, you know, what's hot, what's not hot. For us, it was very different. We actually went overseas and Japan became the epicenter for us. We were really doing a lot of work in Japan and really learning that culture. They're really respecting what we bring to the table. And that was where our bread and butter was, not just monetarily, but even just releasing records and, and, fan base and all of those kind of good things and um then it started to spread again from japan to japan and europe and japan europe and africa japan europe africa australia you know so it started to spread and now we're back to you know definitely not where we were in the 90s but we're at a place now where our music is being more appreciated and i think the cycle of what's hot and what's not sort of has done its its thing and we're back sort of at a place where people are recognizing the contribution of an arrested development. Sounds like, have you spent a lot of time in Japan? Yeah, very much. And you seem like you, you like the culture. Love it. Love the culture. Yeah, I do. And is it, if, of all the places that you spent time, do you feel like it's the culture that you relate to the most? Or how, how would you describe that? I think it's the culture that I respect the most. Relate to, no. I mean, you know, it's, the language barrier is huge. I don't speak, um, you know, Japanese and... And there's a lot of parts of their culture that I totally relate to, but I like the results of it from a just a social living amongst them perspective. I'm not talking about their politics or any of the sort of bigger issues that if you live in Japan, you might be facing. I'm not talking about that at all. Just just the on an everyday level, the social realities of being in that country is great. I mean, it's safe. You know, we as we're struggling right now with just a, a shooting in another school here in the United States, which is an endless narrative here. And with no end in sight, in Japan, my friend was able to send his five-year-old daughter on a train system for an hour away for school by herself. That is unheard of in the United States of America. And I could lose my wallet in Japan as a foreigner, could have whatever amount of money you want to say in it. And I'll get that wallet back most likely by the end of the day or the next day in Japan. There's just a different cultural reality and it's safer. It's and the, the level of excellence is is unprecedented, you know, when I travel other places compared to Japan and in, in the area of like sound and serving us um, on stage and doing a great job with sound, which as a musician, it's just like this interview we're doing now, you know, if the sound was horrible. It just makes for a worse experience to talk to one another. And it's the same way with music. When people care about what they're doing, it makes a big difference with what we're going to do as an artist for the audience. And Japan has that in, you know, um, on its side to me. So there's just a lot of things that I deeply respect about you know, their culture. They do a lot of things really, really well. They do. And they care about they all those details. Yeah. On a level that 
I mean, I've been a little bit of experience in Korea. I think they care about the details like that too, but not quite like the Japanese. I agree. You know, yeah. the, but the Japanese, the Japanese are a, a a different level of attuned. They're they're attuned to the physical world. Yeah. In a way that's different than I think most other cultures. I agree with that. But they also seem like they're disconnected from the metaphysical world in a way that other cultures aren't. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. In fact, you know, as a Christian, you know, in Japanese culture, submission, submission is a layered word, although it doesn't seem like it would be, but it is a layered word. And submission is something that is very prevalent in Japanese culture. You know, they sort of believe in blending in as opposed to standing out, do what you're told, so on and so forth. Um, You know, I learned pretty quickly being around the sort of Christian element in Japan that their submission was based on their culture. It wasn't because they felt like they really needed to actually listen to you whatsoever. And then they would have their own ways of rebelling against it, even though they might be doing it physically, but emotionally and in other ways they are thoroughly detached from the entire experience. And so with Christianity, that's not a good thing because Christianity requires an actual relationship, as I was discussing earlier, right? Well, real Christianity, right? There's false everythings in the world. So that's something that I learned about the Japanese culture. They're not necessarily always connected. Uh, you, you mentioned metaphysically, and I agree, like, but they are in the physical world very, you know, sort of lock and step. And it's pretty interesting, the dynamics. Yeah, I've. I've tried to understand how they can be so spiritually in tune with the physical because they are Mm -hmm. and really like in many ways, so spiritually in tune with each other physically Mm -hmm. in a communal sense, but like really caring for the community, but how they can do all that without any underlying philosophy or underlying spirituality yeah. that has any notion of the universe having personality. Yeah. I can't figure out what keeps them going. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what might keep them going? I don't. I don't. But I, I do say that to me, they are a great example of the power of culture. And we were talking earlier, maybe before we started recording or not, I'm not sure when we started recording, but we were talking earlier and about sort of um, the lack of imagination that you were saying um, with people um, sort of not knowing exactly what makes them happy, what doesn't make them happy, so on and so forth. And I feel like they're a great example of the power of culture when it's done pretty well, that for thousands of years now, their culture has enabled them to treat one another pretty well and to um, foster this this safeness and this um, morality, but in quotes, because I don't I don't know if it's morality that there's that they're after. There's something else. There's some type of just interactive um, sort of uh, belief system that they have that that is deeply effective on some things that we we really mess up with here in the United States. Like and. Um, it's just, it's just fascinating. At the end of the day, it's just fascinating to me. How old are your kids now? I have a 28-year-old son and a 25-year-old daughter. Yeah. Okay, so you've already kind of gone through the experiment that is the culture of a family. Sort of. My, my daughter still lives with us pretty much. Okay. okay. <laughs> Full time. <laughs> you're, I mean, you're a very intentional person. How, how, what were some of the things culturally that you tried to create inside of the culture of your family? That's a great question. For me, I, I wanted to create safeness, um, a sense of security, a sense of direction, like, hey, this is what our family is going to do. And it could be in the realms of spirituality, but I never wanted to force it on my kids. So like, for instance, my Christian faith, I never forced on our kids. My wife and I never did. Um, Definitely a sense of love, a sense of, you know, we're here for you no matter what. So like there was one walk, me, my wife and my son were having, 
and uh, we live on a lake, a man-made lake, of course, here in Georgia. But um, we're walking around the lake, and it's our son and I, my wife and I. And, you know, we're at this time, we're, we're leaders in the ministry, and we're sort of like a big deal in our little ministry world. And, you know, we're talking casually, and we're just like, we're talking about God. And, and my son, our son was like, yeah, I, I know I believe in God. And we were like, great, you know. And then he was like, but I don't believe in Jesus. And I don't believe in it. And it just threw us off because we're thinking this whole time we've raised him to believe in this, that, and a third. And he didn't believe in any of that. And we did not shame him. We did not try to rebuke him or like correct him. It's like, oh, we were just surprised. Like, oh, damn, you don't believe in none of this stuff. So it's like you're around all of this energy. And, I'm, and it made me proud in one sense, the sense of even though his mom and, and, and myself practiced this and were very engulfed in it, he felt 100% comfortable to tell us, number one, what he felt. And number two, that we also must have, you know, fostered a type of culture in our family that he wanted to think different places. And it totally reminded me of myself when I was younger anyway. So I, I love that. And I, I, I think that that's what we foster as a family. What's he up to these days? He's 28. He's a he's a, a beast with like graphic design, video work, music. Like the guy is just one of those um, millennial in all directions artists. Like he literally draws stuff. He does stuff on the computer with graphic design. He does computer programming. He's that guy. And he's a, you know, full ride scholarship from SCAD in uh, Savannah. SCAD is the, the school. I don't know what it's called. Um, but anyway, it's big sort of art school and, um, yeah, Savannah college of art and design. There it is. Savannah college of art and design. And, um, yeah, full ride scholarship there. Just one of those, um, really smart, driven, inner driven young men, you know, great guy. That's a $300,000 scholarship. There you go. Yes, I know very well. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. His mom and I, you know, very much know how much we uh, dodged a bullet on that one. Yeah, no, I have a number of friends who've sent their kids there. It's a it's fantastic school. It is. Um, you know, top of the line when it comes to all this training and in art and design and everything. They actually have a great film program too. They do, and he he took some classes within that, and you know he's. He's just really a smart guy, really, really a great guy, just in general, even if he wasn't my son. You know? So when I was young, I spent a summer in Russia. Nice. And I lived with this family, didn't speak any English. And they were very poor. It was in the, it was the mid-90s. And, um, and it was in Siberia, but it was the summer. So it was kind of like living in Colorado in the summer. But this family, they were all incredibly musical. So they didn't have a TV. I never heard them listen to the radio or listen to music. But every night they would get out their stringed instruments. Love it. And play all sorts of randomness. Like, you know, they would play classical music on their stringed instruments. But they would also play some version of, like, Russian folk music. Right, yeah. Right, the way that, like, our hillbillies would play yeah. the fiddle yeah yeah right and um and so one of the things that's interesting to me is that you're obviously a very ideas driven person true right like you've yeah. got a lot going on in your mind true. artists have to have a lot going on in their heart yeah as well but what, what the question i have for you is is your music more ideas driven or in your house, are you musical? Like, is there just music? It's a great question. There is, but it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with my wife. Mm. So my wife and daughter are singing all the time, walking around the house. I rarely sing in the house. I'm one of those guys that um, I deeply respect what you were just saying about your Russian you know, family that you lived with, because I have African um, friends and family that do the same thing and I deeply respect it and it warms my heart but I don't play an instrument and I rarely sing in the house and I rarely bring sort of my musical element to the casual family atmosphere it's very rare yeah what do you think that's about like what it what it, what is it about 
the music that isn't just flowing out of you, yeah, but has to be intentionally right. Like you're intentional about this, yeah, yeah. But it's not much. just flowing out of you. Like your wife, your, your wife can't help herself. She, she can't just, help herself. Yeah, my daughter and my wife. For me, I think it is more therapeutic and um, more necessary for me. You know, being growing up lonely, as I shared earlier, I think the music became sort of the therapist or, you know, the best friend or, you know, whatever. And um, growing up in the time that I did, you know, I, I grew up, like I told you, all, all white neighborhood, only black kid, a lot of feelings of, you know, being left out and, and the other. So I think music became that comforter in, in, a, in a lot of ways. So that's what I still use it as, as a 54 year old guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for a lot of artists, their art becomes synonymous with who people perceive them to be. But that's obviously not all they are. Facts. But it's hard to escape that, right? So for those of us that have professions where the professions are oftentimes to make money. Sure. And being an artist, hopefully you make money because it gives you more freedom to do art. But the difference being is that a lot of people don't necessarily attribute our personhood to our profession. And so then we have so much freedom to be other things than just what we do to make money. Yeah. What other things do you do that you love that have nothing to do with art? Yeah. Or is that, or is it such an expression of your natural state that all of your life is art? Yeah. For me, um, I think it's probably the latter. Most of my life is art. You know, I, I love spending time with my family. I love spending time with my wife, um, my kids. But, you know, a lot, a lot of my life is sort of, yeah. And my mom always warned me. Like when I was a young kid, she always warned me, you need to be more balanced. You know, you only work on this music up in your room type of thing, right? And she was right. And, and I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm pretty unbalanced to this day. Like music is <laughs> music is a lot of what I think about. And if not music, art in general. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, like on the way here, I'm li- I love this movie called 12 Monkeys. And Great movie. Great movie. And, and I'm watching a documentary about 12 Monkeys. It came out in like 92 or something. I, I don't know exactly the year. But, you know, it's an old movie. I'm just... It's just what I'm interested in. It's sort of so even my hobbies are about the art and the creation of it. What made Terry Gilliam, you know, do this or what made, you know, why did they do that? You know, these, these are the types of things that interest me. <laughs> what uh, what do you think the next three to five years looks like for you career wise? Um, for me, it's either one of two things. I either want to be retired, which I look forward to um, enjoy my life a lot more. My mom is 84. My dad's 88. They still work, and I don't want to be in their position. I once did a tour um, with James Brown before he passed on. And James Brown was, I don't know, I'm going to say he's in his 70s at the time when we were touring. And I didn't want to be him. Like I, As much as I adore James Brown's music, I didn't want to be that age still working for a living. It was just not the ideal scenario for me. I, I love the idea of just doing whatever I want to do at this, you know, pretty soon. So I, I hope to either retire or if this music that we're creating really catches on and gets enough sort of attraction, then I'd love to tour and do only the most passion and passion oriented shows, tours, collaborations and music that I want to do and nothing more, nothing less money is you know not an object or an op, you know a, a big deal yeah it's not for, money has nothing to do with what you're doing exactly right what what would your retirement look like if it wasn't creation that's a great point to me i think it still would be creation creation of um charities things that i know that i want to do to give back um not just in the united states but other places and organizations um these are things that i'm really big on um, and just creating great moments for people. So I'd still create something, even if it's not music and songs and albums, but cruises, um, destination, you know, cruises or, or events, um, celebrations, um, festivals, things that I think would bring 
bring happiness and information to people's lives. Those things excite me. Do you think that in retirement you could turn off the creation of music? That's a great question. I think I can. I think I can. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can. So uh, this new album, it came out when? came out about two weeks ago now. And what's been the response so far? So far, it's been um, very good. Like, we've had a couple reviews that have given it, like, literally 10-star reviews. Well, no, that's not true. Eight out of 10. (laughs) It was eight out of 10 reviews, which is great. Um, I'm really proud of this record. And and again, for us, and what what we're getting from a lot of fans is that if this is your throwaway songs, then it lets us know what caliber of music you guys insist that you put out, you know, so. But when you say throwaway, you still edited, you, you didn't just go grab these raw, did you? You, you? you brought them in and messed with them or you brought them in raw? Both. Uh, there's some songs that, so, you know, in the music industry, obviously you record these songs on multi-tracks and then you mix them and so on and so forth. Well, there's some songs that were only in demo mode, we had no multi-tracks to, to tweak them or make them better or enhance them. We didn't have it, so we released it as is. And then there's other songs that we were able to tweak and you know, make sure that they were ready for public consumption and stuff like that. Is there a song on there that has something to do with Malcolm X and Malcolm X speech? Is it Malcolm X? Who there's was? a song, uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass yes. said it. Okay. That's Frederick the first Douglass. song in the album, actually. And is yeah. that an actual Frederick Douglass speech? It is. Frederick Douglass said it. It's easier to build strong children than it is to um, repair broken men. So what he's basically saying, and I believe this wholeheartedly, that as people that want to try to make the world better, we need to deeply focus on these children who have a clean slate, in a sense. And um, not to say we don't focus on those that are broken men that are older and have a lot of sort of baggage, but it's deeply important to reach those that have not been um, sort of hurt yet. Well, the strength of a nation, obviously, and all of history will tell us that the strength of a nation is only as strong as the strength of its young men. Thoroughly. Now, when I say young men, I mean young people, but... um, I was I was recently down at Fort Benning visiting a bunch of young men who were all just finishing Hell Week for the Army Rangers. Okay. And it was incredibly encouraging and inspiring to see a hundred fit, focused, yeah, disciplined, well mannered American men sure. of age 18 to 28, because there were, there were a couple, I think there might have been a 30-year-old in that group that was going through ranger training for the first time that finally got in. Like It was hard to get into ranger training. And these were kids from every socioeconomic level in sure. the United States. Yeah. As far as I could tell, I mean, generally every race, right? There were... Latin kids, Asian kids, black kids, white kids, all just just like in sports, getting along without any um, difficulty because they had common goals and common beliefs. And sure. But it's hard right now to look at a lot of youth culture and feel uh, safe when thinking about the future. Yeah, because it, there's it's there's so much disparity. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of unity in what it means to be an American, mm-hmm. and that's disconcerting for a country that is driven by ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you what are you seeing in youth culture around that? Like, do you think what what's your hope for America? In that regard, like, do you think there's enough unity for America to last another hundred years? Um, no, I don't think so. Not as is. I think, again, with this hope versus, you know, pessimism um, thing that we've been sort of talking about, as is, no. But I do think that what you witnessed is an institution that was able to 
collect a group of people and make them all submit to a sort of common idea. And it brought about fantastic results. To me, I feel like as a country, we have got to be able to rally around more truth, more transparency. And if we can do that, then we can create an institution and a nation that can um, really benefit the entire you know, future of this country and world. But I think we've got to get to more truth. Um, you know, for instance, when they're Xing out black history and Xing out um, certain atrocities that this country has, has done to people, that's not the way to do, uh, that's not the way to bring about unity and to bring about people that are disciplined, ready, to tackle the truth of, of life and, and make this, this nation and world a better place. So, What do you think? I mean, so I agree with you that, that the question of ideas and the expression of our history and that, and that debate is critical because the history is replete with error and success. Right. But it's, it's a very vast library of abuse and, and, and achievement Yeah, and trying to figure out what that blend is. Right. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is a flawed man of a certain era and he's a genius. Mm-hmm. Right. And so trying to figure out like how you preserve all of the things that are genius about men like the founding fathers while not um, covering over their flaws. Exactly. But what we don't want to do is lose them as men because there are so many things they did that were great. Fantastic. Yeah, right. we agree. Um, I think that's, you just said it, you know, you have to make sure to express the full story so that we don't repeat the negative things while we could celebrate and uphold the positive things. So, you know, um, to me, it's not good to try to whitewash or blackwash history. So whitewash it, meaning make everything that whites did in the past fine and try to erase everything that, you know, was wrong and the things that blacks contributed. And then vice versa, try to take away all of what's good that whites did and try to make it only from the black perspective of what blacks contributed in, in the in the horrors that blacks have lived through. So to me, you got to be able to speak the truth about all of it so that people can then pick and choose what they want to um, use as inspiration for the future and as, for the present and, and make this nation truly better as opposed to you know, raise it up on, on a bunch of lies again and things of this nature, falsehoods. Yeah. I think, I mean, you got to have a strong military or you lose all the right to have a conversation, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are other countries and other ways of being that would like to wipe our way of being off the planet. And I think that's just true. So I think the military becomes a special situation and something that we should all be dedicated to because we lose military strength and we lose our ability to express any of these things with um, freedom. But it, it, what, what, it, when you were talking, it made me think of a story I heard recently. I was out in Utah visiting and somebody told me a story about the Utah railroads. And when the railroad was coming from the East and the West, they were, it was going to meet in Utah is where the railroads were going to connect. And the guys who owned the railroads went out and met with Brigham Young, who was the Mormon leader at the time. And they didn't like Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to help Brigham Young. And so they decided they wouldn't have the railroads meet in Salt Lake City. They were going to make their own town. And so they went north of Salt Lake City about an hour, and they created the town of Ogden, mm-hmm. Ogden, Utah. Now, I thought that was, you know, just interesting in itself because they knew that wherever the railroads went through prospered. Exactly. So they got to make that choice. But from the East, the workers from the East were largely Irish. The workers coming from the West were largely Chinese. And the way that they would keep everybody motivated was 
that they, they largely lived on a train. So they had this long train that was basically like bunkhouses. But on that long train, they had bars and they had prostitutes that traveled with the, the crew. Sure. And so from the, the, the crew coming from the east, they would work all day and the Irish then would drink whiskey and then whore about for the evening uh-huh. and then get about get up the next day and do it all again. But right. that was like the motivation for the work. The motivation would lead to then a night of, of drinking. Right. Right. The the workers from the coming from the West, the Chinese workers, the railroads provided them the same things, bunk houses, all this stuff, and the and prostitutes, but they had then opium dens. Uh-huh. Right? So they would work all day. <laughs> And then they would smoke opium right. and whore about right. <laughs> and then get up and do the same thing. Well, when in the history of railroads, you don't ever read about this part, <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. The practical part of how did you get all these people to actually work every day? I mean, they were building, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was like, I, I think it was more than 15 miles of rail a day. Wow. That they were actually laying down. Wow. Which is nutty to think about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But how much richer is it? I think this is richer as a, as a human to not just hear about Cornelius Vanderbilt and the guys who built the railroads and then just say, and they built a railroad from right, here exactly. to there. Yeah. But instead, to like get in, when you get into the nitty gritty of like yeah. actually managing humans, yeah. actually motivating humans, sure. actually understanding human vice, yeah. right, and yeah. and how it plays into motivation of actual of, of, of work, yeah. um, that kind of history is rich and should be told yeah. and shouldn't be avoided, right? Yeah. We shouldn't avoid the places where our vices and our maybe lack of morality plays into actual accomplishment. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't, and, and in the, in the same way, what you were talking about, like we, you know, we can't, we can't take just the um, results of history without the detail of maybe the atrocities or the, but you need both, right? Yeah. Both is how you actually find out the truth Understanding Japanese culture helps you understand why they were good warriors because they were willing to die for their, for the whole Yeah. in a different way than an American is willing to die for freedom. Yeah. Both are powerful fighting cultures driven by different ideas and they get there by different ends. Yeah. But understanding all the detail of, how, of, of those motivations and those, and that process is the real learning. Yeah. And that's what we need to get to, don't you think? I do. And I would only add to that, like using the train analogy, you know, learning the vices that it took to keep these workers motivated is important. You know, learning about the people that actually put this whole thing into action and why they did is important, but also learning the indigenous cultures that sacrifice their land to probably to make these tracks go down in the first place all of these trying to understand the full focus so we can understand if it was even worth it to make the train track in the first place was the capitalism that ensued and the the monies that were made and the quote-unquote advancement as a society that was made was it even worth it compared to what was there before you know these are the types of things that I think the future generations should have to, um, or should have the opportunity to figure out for themselves. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's a, there's a long, interesting conversation around property, the notion of property, yeah, notion of property rights, exactly, which um, obviously the Indians didn't have yeah. a notion of property or property rights. I mean, the notion of property, but not landed property. Exactly. And that in that the infusion of those new ideas was so bizarre, obviously to the indigenous population. Exactly. But they'd still been warring over lands. Just, they didn't think they owned them. They only controlled them. Exactly. Right. So then yeah. the war was about control. Yeah. Whereas our notions of actually deeding land exactly. and private property rights then gave us not what we thought was just warring over land. We actually, when I say we, the American notion of land, yeah. 
then gave us an idea that we were just defending our own land, right? On, on some level, like like our ideas were went beyond just war and control. But those ideas have incredible economic impact. The notion yeah. of you know, but anyway, we th- that's a different conversation. It is that is Great actually a really wonderful, happen. fun yeah. conversation. Yeah. Those are the conversations that that get to happen inside of a of a free country. Yeah. Um. All right, so we we ran out of time. Okay. Um, this has been really really enjoyable. Me too. I agree. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I, I like yeah. the I like the way you think, and um, you've got a you got a, a great soul, deep soul. Well, thank you. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Out of the country and into more countries, fast eyes burn. Into rhythms where the ghost of childhood haunts me. Walk the road my forefathers walked. Climb the trees my forefathers hung from. Ask those trees for all their wisdom. They tell me my ears are so young. Go back to whence you came. My family tree, my family life. For some strange reason, it had to be. I'm, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah. Ryan's producer. And I'm- no, I love it. I love your album I love so the music. much. I appreciate it. And yeah. I moved here in 1992. From where? From um, uh, New Jersey, beautiful okay. New Jersey. Okay. From Buffalo originally. Oh, wow. My grandma spent a lot of time in Buffalo. Yeah, all the people yeah. in Buffalo, look, they have perfect skin and they never see the sun. I love it. <laughs> but my dad was an on-air guy. Okay. And you, I don't know about your mixing and your channel mixing uh-huh. on this album. Yeah. But I was listening to it on a laptop. Okay. A good laptop, but on a laptop. And I could hear your A and B channels. Oh, and I love that. I just wanted it. It's kind of a throwback. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you yeah. why you did that. Yeah. Well, um, for us, I mean, it's really a mistake in the sense of we recorded a lot of this music at different eras in, in our career. And some of it, for instance, was recorded um, in our hotel room. And uh, like we were in Bali, for instance, and while the rest of the group went out to sort of deal with monkeys and, you know, like tourist attractions, I was in the hotel room locked up and just in this creative mode, you know. And so a lot of this stuff was created on totally different circumstances, each song being 100 percent different than the next. Yeah. Ryan interviewed Isaac Hayes, son, Isaac Hayes, the third recently. Okay. And I could hear. Uh, Brilliant some man. Sh- yeah, I could hear some shaft yeah. in here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I agree. Actually, no, I you're love, right. I, I was um, just like per- propelled. You know, there's the Hot Butter Soul record. From, Straight uh, Out of the Jungle. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. actually, yeah. you're very right. Yeah, it's good. Um, you know, Isaac Hayes is a big influence on this record in particular, so I'm, I'm really interested that you uh, said that. Um, his music scapes... Um, in particular moved us on this record on the certain songs it it just so happened that a lot of his music was on repeat while we were doing certain songs during the the last 15 years of doing this record that's interesting yeah and i believe in love i believe in love yeah that really took me back to old arrested original arrested sure development Yeah, yeah thank you i appreciate that you know i gotta give a lot of um, credit to Tasha LeRae, who's one of the newer members, who was a soul singer. And she's the one that came up with that chorus. She's the one, in my opinion, that sort of sent that song in the direction that it went in. And um, yeah, I totally praise her for that. Beautiful, beautiful. Ryan, thank you for letting me jump in on that. I really wanted to um, ask those questions. So thank you. Course. Wrap her up. We're gonna wrap it up. Black Hole Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. 